Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is Claire O'Connor and I'm here with my co-host Michelle Bourne. The Week at Work is a member of the Left Block political education and media platform and if you'd like to support us or find out about any of our other work you can find that on leftblock.ie and that's leftblock with a c and if you'd like to support us you can support us through patreon and that's patreon.com forward slash leftblock again leftblock with a c michelle what's the big stories of the week for you well i think the biggest thing that um kind of shook everyone that broke out this week is the resistance in palestine um really took everyone by surprise including israel as we saw um under the cloak of the morning hours, um, we saw a huge uprising um, in Palestine where um, essentially Hamas was coming back to, like, it actually quite, it was quite surprising, but we saw obviously a massive resistance again. So I guess like the background to this is obviously we're talking like 60 years now of apartheid in Palestine, um, of, you know, land being grabbed, of settlers, literally coming in under the cloak of darkness and stealing people's land um and you know you see I, I've been to Palestine myself we've done a whole podcast on this so for anyone who's coming new to this I'd highly recommend listening back to that to seeing what you know hearing directly from someone who was there recently and like what it's like on the ground but you know essentially it's been described as you know one of the world's only open air prisons um, you know, we've seen unspeakable war crimes for the last number of years, you know, crimes against humanity, illegal collective punishment um, for years um, by, you know, the Israeli state against Palestinians. Um, and particularly in the last, you know, 15 years, this has really amped up and we've seen, you know, so much land taken away from the Palestinians. Um, we've seen massive oppression. We've seen ma massive apartheid and you know, it's just a, a huge act of colonization. And I guess for some people who are talking about this now, we've seen, you know, Miha um, Martin come out in response, um, a terrible response, you know, saying, essentially saying that Palestinian is terrible for, pa Palestine is terrible for having this response. But I guess, you know, what what does decolonization actually look like in practice? Um, often it's not pretty. Um, and I think people need to remember that as well, you know, and what are essentially what, what are the material conditions that have molded this reality that people felt like they had to, um, do, you know, to had to, to have this take place. So, like, I guess what I'm saying is like none of this is really happening in a vacuum. You know, um, there's been a huge like years of oppression, years of injustice that have preceded this. There's like, you know, what's been described as ethnic cleansing actually happening in Palestine for years. Um, and I guess like, you know, people probably need to ask themselves, like, how would you respond if that was in, you know, if that was you? How would you respond to that? So I guess like some of what, what's happening, we saw um, obviously um the Israeli military have been taken by a huge surprise. Um, their intelligence has failed despite all of their fancy technology, all their massive resources that they put into oppressing Palestinians. We saw people flying in on hand gliders over borders. Like, you know, it's just like, screw your fancy money and technology. We're going in on a hand glider and, you know, all of this. So very interesting to see that with like lack of resort, like a lot of lack of resources, what um, they were able to do. But of course, um, and we saw actually that there was like some Israeli military um being taken hostage. Um, you know, you see these guys walking out and they're being walked out in their boxers, who clearly from their bed, you know, um, um, it's the pictures that have been been coming out online. Um, but of course we knew this was gonna happen, that Israel 
responded in a you know very the Israeli state have responded in an extremely heavy-handed way this morning I'm reading over 260 um Palestinians have been um killed by the Israeli state in in all of this um I'm reading that you know because of the years of um apartheid that Israel has imposed on Palestine what they've actually been able to do is cut off their electricity cut off their fuel sources and cut off their goods supplies because that's how those those um systems are designed to work um Israel has had has had control over those systems for years and their water actually where they can just switch it off as you know as they see fit so that's that's worrying to see that but unsurprising but concerning is the fact that you, the usual actors you have the US Ursula van der Leyen from the EU and Michal Martin coming out saying you know uh Israel should fight back with as much gumption as they can or whatever it's something along those lines um and of course this is just giving them absolute uh the go-ahead for a full-scale war which they were already enacting on ordinary Palestinians as it was. Um, it's just the media are covering it a bit more this time. Um, but this has been going on. We've seen, I think, nearly 200 Palestinians already killed this year before this broke out this yeah. week. So, you know, this isn't news to the Palestinians. They have been facing this for, it's an ongoing daily struggle for them. Yeah, like you said, I mean, I think a really important part is Netanyahu came out and said, he warned the people of Gaza to leave, that they were basically going to flatten Gaza. Like, that's that's basically the threat they made. And, you know, a lot of the response around the world has been, leave to go where? They can't leave. So basically, they're surrounded by land on all sides. And But they're also, like, they, they're, they're probably the only country in the world, I've heard it argued, that can't actually leave by water. They can't, refugees can't, or they can't try to flee um, by water because the, the Israeli warships actually, you know, monitor the sea and they shoot them down. And it's basically, it's this massive refugee camp that essentially has come from 247 villages that were ethnically cleansed, you know, back in 1948. So this is a situation that has been created by Israeli settlers. They have been colonized, oppressed, terrorized and systematically killed for 70 years. But particularly in Gaza for the past 15 years, they, like you said, they have their water, their power, their um they've absolutely no control over their own lives and over their own future and i think when you see some of the, like one of netanyahu's own party members they're calling for genocide they're calling for genocide they're calling for the absolute and to be honest i find it very hard to believe that israel didn't know anything i really do i find it very hard to believe that they didn't see, they, they did they knew nothing and they didn't see anything coming i think they have been really embarrassed embarrassed on the world stage but i think the response i mean you mentioned ursula von Leyen, like the eu have basically come in and supported an imperialist power at like and, and the comparison that a lot of people have been making is with Ukraine and we saw Zelensky himself come out and and, and align with Israel Israel have the right to defend themselves <clears throat> and this language around Israel being the the country that has been attacked and not that actually the Palestinian people have the right to move against their oppressors and I, I think the big focus I know online has been that there's been some horrific imagery going around which there has and the idea that because those of us that support Palestine and support their right to self-determination and the right to fight back against their oppressor as if like we we think that's great and that's absolutely grand and we're absolutely grand with those images. It's absolutely horrific. This is what happens when you brutalize people as well. Like this is and you talked about, you know, decolonization. There's a lot of talk about, you know, there's so many academics that have written and talked about decolonization for years and they're silent now. Because it's okay when decolonization is this concept that you can talk about and you can write about and you can talk about when it's in the past. But decolonization is a bloody violent process. There is not like colonizers 
oppressed violently and they, they only recognize a violence that is actually worse than their own and that's the reality so Michal Martin came out with that awful statement yesterday basically saying that they had the right to defend themselves and then last night started to roll it back into both sides so last night he started to say that Israel potentially you know responded disproportionately as if nobody knew that that was going to happen in the first place that was always going to happen the reality here is that the world has failed the Palestinian people they've allowed this to happen and have blood in their hands and that's like that is just absolutely black and white Israel has been committing war crimes for yeah for so long um for so long and I guess we've like the the international stages just stood by and watched this happen and then respond as if like oh we're so shocked that um you know people have now risen up to fight against this but I guess you know I think I saw um Chris Hazard um from Sinn Féin MEP post uh, a JFK quote actually but he said you know yeah, who those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. And it's not as if we haven't been seeing what's been happening for years about, you know, what is um Israeli state has been doing to Palestinian people there. Um, but at the same time, you know, a um loss of life and the the scenes that we're seeing is concerning, you know, and a lot of us who stand up for peace and we stand, you know, a lot of us are anti-war. And yeah. but what what does peace mean? under apartheid what is peace you know you can't have that you can't have peace under apartheid or under colonization so I think you know who's to blame for that it's the Israeli state and you know if they hadn't had that level of aggression that active aggression of apartheid towards Palestinians for years um this wouldn't have happened in the first place so kind of just to note that as well like where I, I think the blame lies when it comes to this response in the first place that they felt compelled to have to do this yeah, exactly. And I think that it's very easy. to there's, a, there's just a real sense that people support the Palestinian people when they're suffering. They support the Palestinian people when they're suffering and when they're being murdered and shot and killed. And, and when, you know, like I tweeted yesterday and a lot of the responses I was getting was videos of horrific videos of civilians being murdered. He said, you support this, you agree with this. And it's it's so frustrating that they're just, they're, there's absolutely no nuance or no acceptance of that the truth matters here and you can't act like this started today and you can't act like that the international community doesn't have a part to play in this and also so we, now we see as well so there's all this talk and it, it's been exploited you know around the world so you have this talk about Iran you have this talk about Russia and then this is why you know particular countries are, are coming in behind Israel but you look at the videos like what's most frustrating about that for me is that I see videos, horrific videos of Palestinian people being beaten, being shot, children being shot. Just the most inhumane and horrific treatment daily online. It's daily online. And you have to ask these people, do they not see that? But they either don't see it or it doesn't register with them. And it doesn't register with them because it is inherently, it's Islamophobia, it's racism, it's they, they see them as less human. And that that's that's being created and it's been nurtured over the years. And that, that, that's the absolute only excuse for why the situation in Palestine could have been allowed to continue until now and we the stories in the papers this morning about <clears throat> now um, Hezbollah have gotten involved in some disputed regions and there's a real fear that this could break out across the Middle East like this could really escalate and it could be what a lot of international actors bad faith actors have been waiting for so the Palestinian people are at a, a massive disadvantage now that Israel is coming in and absolutely you know they're basically carpet bombing they've, they've demolished whole buildings um the very little infrastructure that the people in Gaza already had, like you said, 70% of their water was redistributed to settlers. They've been systematically oppressed and tortured for 15 years in Gaza. And this was just, this was eventually going to happen and the international community has blood in their hands. And I think that, you know, those of us, like you said, that are anti-war and just want peace, 
you know, they have to recognize that the only thing that's going to result in any kind of peace is Israel removing themselves from Palestinian land. And that's it. And that, you know, peace talks. And uh, Michal Martin last night was talking about a two party system. And it's just like we in this country alone, we had the opportunity to support the BDS movement. We had Francis Black's bill uh, there a couple of years ago. It was on the table for the program of government and the Green Party sacrificed it. And that, you know, that all has a part to play in this because that would have put pressure on the Israeli government. It would have put pressure around the world to, to follow suit. And the very small steps that we could have taken, we were on, like the BDS bill was basically only asking people not to buy or do business with people on illegal settled land. Land that is already, it's not disputed, like this is illegal territory. They're there illegally. The settlers are there illegally. That's, you know, recognised at the UN. And still the international community couldn't do that. So all of the deaths are are on the hands and on the heads of the international community and unfortunately it is disproportionately going to be obviously there was a lot of uh, Israelis killed yesterday but it is still not going to be anywhere near the death of the suffering that's happening and going to happen to the Palestinian people yeah it's it's absolutely yeah yeah there's it will, it's still obviously unfolding as we chat about this so obviously we'll see what happens but you know as you said absolutely shocking statements from leaders across the world on in response to this so um it's a bit worrying to see how this is going to progress but i guess there are, there are other stories that we should probably touch on as well um coming back home like it seems minor in comparison to be honest and in ways when you think about this the scale of everything um but the budget of course everyone is talking about the budget this week um this tuesday the the budget's going to be Announced, and I just think like every year there's such a big, you know, so many groups are like lobbying to get changes ahead of the budget. There's such a like scramble for everyone to try and, you know, there's this idea of like, oh, scarcity, scarcity. We all need to scramble for these scraps um, for all the things that need to be funded. Um, and, uh, you know, are people advocating for those um, funding, the same funding pot, but at the, at the, the same time, you know, <sighs> The, the government are going to only spend the way they, you know, whatever is aligned to them at the end of the day, Um, you know, as much as we, we want to put, push them in the right direction. But at the end of the day, neoliberal policy also dictates how things are funded. And we're seeing that again in some of the in some of the um reporting. So like for for as as they do every year, actually, you know, we start at this point, the last week or two, we've seen this kind of preparation uh, preparing us for you know how no one's going to get a lot there's only you know it's not going to be a lot for everyone dampening our expectations because god forbid we actually expect our government to fund the services that we need in the country um but we're seeing already talks of um essentially subsidies for the rich the usual um we're talking we're hearing stuff about landlords getting tax breaks we're hearing um about like you know tax cuts in general um a couple of a couple of different ones we're hearing like you know all these leaks but i honestly think that all these leaks that happen in front uh, ahead of the budget are the government floating their ideas and seeing how people respond um and if there's enough backlash or if there's enough ad, okay um they kind of just go with it because we know that up until like the last couple of days they're making decisions um about how things get funded which is mad you know and it's really done on a lot of politics of like who knows who and who can get in the best deal for their minister brief or whatever you know it, it's it's horrible when you think about it the, the politicizing around the budget when it's such a vital part of how society runs and you know especially with the the local elections coming up now um next year there's definitely going to be a lot of like oh what can we get now in order to get votes and you know we've seen Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil and the Greens like 
systematically going down in the polls when it comes to um their support base and they're going to use this budget now um while they have the opportunity to try and win back some of that support base um by taxing landlords or you know giving tax cuts to landlords um extending income tax bans is another one that we've heard we have I have read as well that potentially there's going to be some credits for energy and rent, um. But we've seen already that the rent credits haven't been working in the way that they're supposed to. Most people aren't haven't actually been, been claiming that tax credit back because it's inaccessible to them in the way that it is. The housing crisis is so bad. One of the um requirements to get the tax credit for the for rent, um, and I've heard this from a number of my friends who are renting, they can't access it because the landlord's not registered, um. You know, and so it's just like you're setting up these things to make it sound like a lovely PR point, but actually, at the end of the day, um, these things aren't even working the way they're supposed to, um, and then of course, you know, credits for energy. Why are we not just going in at the suppliers, and why are we not talking about publicly funding, like publicly fund state owned, state run energy, and actually cutting out the problem of um massive uh profiteering in the energy sector? We're seeing the numbers, like we're not take, we're seeing the numbers coming out of the profits the quarterly profits um for the last couple of years and the government were like you know what we'll just give them more money here's here's another subsidy for you um straight into the back pocket without any question about why they're profiteering in the first place or how to actually reduce that in the first place so again a lot of um stupid measures for um for the idea of oh we're gonna we'll get votes out of this we'll get votes out of this people will get yeah. this at Christmas now and they'll be thinking about us then when the local elections come or when the polls come out and all of that so sorry to be so cynical about it but I'm actually have absolutely no hope in the budget because it's just an absolute setup for them to politicize for votes and yeah I just I can't like I very little expectations. <laughs> We did a special for anybody who hasn't heard it. We did a special about two years ago now, actually, with Conor McKay. But it was about how to actually how you actually interpret a budget and how you really dig in. You know, because most most people like don't really don't you know go go that deep. They don't have to understand. They kind of think, well, how much is this going to put back in my pocket, and or else you know where's the money going to be spent. And like, I, you know, some of the figures about what's going to be put in people's pocket compared to what it's actually going to cost on a national level and what that could be done if it was invested in capital spending. So I'd say, you know, have a listen to Conor McKay's podcast. We're going to do another budget special during the week. Um, But, you know, I totally agree. I think also there's, there's the scarcity talk that's happening again about, you know, like the corporation uh, tax intake was down, but it's still massively up in terms of what the projections were for last year. So this idea that they're, they're introducing the idea of scarcity or that we need to plan for in a couple of years time and, but again, what they're doing is they're they're completely they're undoing some of the long term measures that have been implemented uh, previously. I mean, the the disability, we haven't really covered it yet. and We are going to cover it in more detail, but their their plans for the disability payment to break it down into three separate payments. And I mean, we talked about the response in the Dolly of Radcar's comment about he was asked if he'd ever seen I, Daniel Blake, and he responded with no, but I've seen Benefit Street. Are, well, yeah, it's one of those awful programs that completely demonizes working class people on benefits. But the idea that you're going to put people through the ringer even more when they're disabled and or they're on a disability or an in, uh, invalidity payment and ask them to justify, you know, what they're entitled to. And also then some of those people will be forced back into work and it's this activation method. And it's, it, it hasn't got as much attention as it should. And it's one of the most disgusting measures that I've heard in a really long time. Um, And unfortunately, it seems like they might just be able to just actually push it through the budget rather than, you know, it's a really significant change in terms of social protection, but it's vile. It is the absolute worst of neoliberal um capitalist uh politics. And it's like, we already treat disabled people and carers and people who 
literally aren't in a position to work and also are saving the state so much money then in terms of carers as well. We already don't give them enough money to live on. We already make life so much harder for them than it already is, you know, and listen, this government does that for everybody. But when you're talking about people who, as a result of like, you know, a disability or a health issue, cannot work like it's not like there is any choice there it's just absolutely horrific and i think that uh if that doesn't show how how, how poisonous you know this government or any neoliberal liberal government to be honest is going to be i don't know what is i think what's really interesting as well is when Sinn Féin came out with their alternative budget and obviously there was a there was a headline about them delaying the you know scrapping the idea of immediately introducing the the wealth tax that they were talking about basically they said they were going to put it to a they're going to put it to a, a you know a committee to research it basically which a lot of people were disappointed in but when you go through the article and you're like there's some really good measures in there and you know for the media to select that one that they knew would really piss off the left compared to some of the good measures true and now listen there's other stuff that i don't agree with and i'm disappointed with. like there's a there is a, always a worry about Sinn Féin as they get closer to government moving towards the center i think the whole left is obviously worried about that but when you see articles like that 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 pick those things out because they want to store that within the left. And also we, what we saw is we saw Nessa Horgan, we saw Green Party members, we saw Fianna Gael members coming out and saying it was a love letter to Fianna Fáil. They know that pushing that narrative that Sinn Féin are going to go into government with Fianna Fáil will actually damage them. It will damage their voter base. It will damage them across the left. And it's something that we have to be really careful about and we have to not feed into. So I think we have to be, we have to really push Sinn Féin and advocate for those really left wing policies and make sure that they, they, you know, move towards the left rather than the centre, while also not feeding into the very, you know, coordinated effort to, to damage them you know, by the media, by the centrist and, and centre-right parties. And I think that that's something that we have to think bigger picture here. You know, we really do. Listen, the system is never going to serve us. The system is never going to do what we need, no matter what, no matter who gets into power. I just think that's that we have to accept that at this stage. But if we want the best it can possibly be for now and to, to prevent it being the worst it can be, because we can see the harm and, you know, these centre-right parties get into power, I think... um. I think we just have to be really careful around that, that we don't let the media whip us up into attacking Sinn Féin as they get closer to power, because the last thing we need is another Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael government. You know, the reality is the Sinn Féin are our best chance for a, a left-wing government. We need them to get into power and then we need to lobby for more progressive left-wing policies all the time. I think that's that's certainly my position on it now. But yeah, I think the the, the stories and the articles around the budget, it's draining because when you see the same patterns happen year in, year out, and people begging for pennies you know and lobbyists going in <clears throat> making their case and we know the kind of money is there and that's i suppose ties into as well there, i have to say there was quite good coverage about the cost of living coalition protest on saturday i heard it on the radio there's a couple of articles there's an article in the irish times today and they they laid out the arguments from the protest i thought really well uh so and i think that was really successful there was massive numbers in there um and i think there was massive numbers watching online so that's brilliant to see particularly coming up to we saw usually we'd be at the the doll the first day back and obviously we saw the right-wing protests there and how horrific they were so it's great to see that there's been a massive um you know left-wing protest particularly around the cost of living because i think that we're seeing people who would never protest before people who never take to the streets getting involved because they're struggling to live and they see that this budget isn't going to do anything for them yeah that's absolutely it um I, I read a couple of interesting pieces about around the budget as well um one was from an estate agent actually um it was in the irish times called the debate where they had like an estate agent lay out their um response to um whether they think 
landlords to get a tax break and then I think an economist responded but I actually realized when I was reading the article that I knew the estate agents that were writing the piece they're from Waterford um so Liberty Blue um are <laughs> not my friends they're a bit notorious for um absolutely ripping off people um and then doing good PR to cover it up um so essentially this estate agent who is in my opinion is largely responsible for the like systematic increases that we've seen in rent locally here in Waterford um so for example Waterford part of Waterford city isn't in a rent pressure zone and they would have been an estate agent that took absolute full um advantage of that like in one case you had someone their rent has been raised by 20 percent um and in the article she's like oh yeah no you know landlords are leaving the market and here's like five cases as to why like cases that I've been dealing with as to why this is uh we need to give tax breaks to um landlords so like you know we have one we have an estate agents here now becoming lobbyists um in order to maximize their own profits but in the piece it's absolutely disgusting like how casually she mentions um evicting people um starts talking about you know oh god you know the 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 equity uh, you know of my landlord's second or third investment property is is that it is is that isn't it you know it's down or she started saying about as well how like you know rent pressure zones are bad for business and we're delivering a service with these uh by providing rentals and all of this and like I actually think that it, does she not read the news where we're seeing like 13,000 homeless um nearly um at this point and like we're constantly breaking records for like you know the highest numbers of homeless and there she is oh god the landlords their poor third investment property it just isn't bringing in the profits that we expected in this article like without even a a, a bit of uh embarrassment at all but she talks about you know how oh one of her clients um a landlord um is renting out a former corporation house and I'm like, yeah, that used to be a public home. It's not like f- to be making profit off the back of. It should never have been sold off in the first place. I'm sorry. And he in the whole piece, she's like, it just isn't profitable anymore. So he evicted the, ten- the tenant. And I'm like, okay, great. That's like not a normal thing for you to just say so casually um, as part of your lobbying thing. And then in another example, she talks about um, a landlord who's selling their um, their property that they're renting out because you know it was terrible that they could only earn a 50% profit margin on the rent 50% on top of what like you know covering all the costs um because the market value was 50% more than the current rate so the mar- the market value is literally a thing that estate agents have essentially created by pushing up rent prices the whole time so they said oh god the poor thing we had to sell off because we were only making 50% profit like I actually and then in another case she starts talking about how oh landlord this my other landlord uh, client has just too many mortgages that they can't keep up okay well if you can't pay your own mortgage then don't be taking out more mortgages stop taking homes from other people um like and I honestly was just I reading it in shock and anger and obviously but like you know we talk about landlords being demonized but I actually don't think estate agents are demonized enough I think they're getting off yeah. very lightly for the role that they're playing in actually increasing what they call market value and pushing up prices for the sake of their profit margins and like you know just totally talking about housing as a commodification and dehumanizing people it's actually shocking but and but also this comes back to as everything does is this the state is allowing this you know they could legislate they could legislate for this they well they could just provide public housing in the first place which would mean people wouldn't have to be you know pushed towards these estate agents and you know wouldn't be exploited in that way but but aside from that they could legislate we have rent pressure zones we have you know they're not very um 
useful to be honest but like we do have some pieces of legislation that if they were widespread and if they were actually enforced could prevent this kind of thing but it's not because the will isn't there because it's a neoliberal capitalist government and that's just they're never going to they're never going to have an interest in doing that because the more money the private interests can make the better so like i think we that's one thing that we really need to we need to keep putting it back to well what are the state doing about this because individual people and capitalists and they're, like they're going to try and make as much money as they can they're going to exploit people and when you get down to basic what people basic necessities for living what people need to survive like if we can't have but the gas i find it funny that like you know we have competition regulation we have we have regulation in so many areas but not around prevent like preventing people being homeless not around making sure people have enough food not around food security like it's 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 farcical it's just ridiculous and i'd it's kind of mad that we get to a stage where people are so used to it that we just keep keep accepting it um and it's yeah it is it's it's just incredibly frustrating but um I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. I think, you know, obviously we have uh, elections coming up, but we need to, you know, we need a new system. I mean, this system, again, I know I keep saying it, but the system isn't going to provide for us. And I think that the grassroots movement, but like a car too, we need to keep challenging these uh, people. Um, we need to keep taking cases. You know, the cases are working. I don't think they're working quickly enough and I don't think they're working with the likes of that, you know, the say agents you're talking about because they seem to be particularly bad. But I don't know, it's pretty, it's pretty bleak out there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then, you know, we we have seen a couple of protests, obviously, in the lead up to the budget, a cost of living protest. I saw the students came out and they were saying, you know, use the rainy day fund now and they had their umbrellas out, look, re looked really cool. And we saw the post-grad workers um, out as well calling for a minimum wage. I read during the week that we have some of the the lowest um, rates of pay for our researchers, which is shocking. But we also saw um, a protest with the childcare um, providers protest which actually was a bit controversial um, so this actually wasn't led by the unions and usually the unions would be coming out for the early years um, you know to professionalise it to fund the sec to, to fund the workers um, in that so that people don't leave but actually what came what actually has transpired is the providers of these childcare um, services came out and I think some people were probably caught up in it not realising that it wasn't led by the unions, that it wasn't led by the workers um, to do a pay. Um, we saw, um, for example, Siptu's Michael Taft, the economist, come out saying, actually, um, there, this isn't actually what you think it is. It's not actually supporting the workers. You know, this is actually the providers who are getting all the subsidies and not giving them to the workers off the back of it. We saw one, for example, um, in the article, it says, in 2019, giraffe paid 6.5 million in dividends to their owners but in that year they had nearly 1.7 million paid for and like the company uh, was paid and then they had the company received 6.7 million in public subsidies through the temporary wage subsidy scheme so in effect the subsidy helped pay for the dividend that went to the owners so now you have the owners coming out again but like oh we want more subsidies but actually when you when you give money like that attached without any kind of requirement for that to go to the workers you're actually seeing it being given in dividends and profits so shocking stuff going on in a in an industry in crisis some of those things like some of those subsidies had conditions with them like you're, you were well actually i think it was the initial covid payment maybe not the wage subsidy i'd have to look into it but one of them had you know your profits had to be down but your income had to be down um uh you know you had to or you had, sorry you had to be down at least 20 percent. you had to be taking in less than 80 percent of your budget for the year before but i just think again this goes right back to we need a nationalized childcare service we need a state provided childcare service because 
as long as there's profit involved, there is going to be exploitation. That's what's going to happen. And I think six and a half million, I mean, it's outrageous. But I think because I was involved in the early starts, if you have a massive uh, campaign around the, the early childhood sector and there's a protest a couple of years ago, I spoke at it and the numbers were massive. I kind of spoke on the, from the perspective of a parent who's really lucky with the childcare they have. But just the stories of like, and the thing like this is the this is the youngest of our kids, you know, our kid before they go to school, they're at their most vulnerable. They can't often communicate or advocate for themselves. And when you like I was so lucky with the people I had that were looking after my kids, but they're educators, they're they're educators, you know, they're not babysitters. These are trained they're like they're, and they're also teaching your kids one of the most valuable things they'll ever have. They're teaching them emotional regulation. They're teaching them how to engage with the world and how to navigate it. And it's not valued enough. None of that is valued. I think that's just that's how things are in this country. We don't value like we don't recognize kind of emotional health, but also the, the like the more we can exploit people, we can. And the fact that that sector is left to private interests, uh, it's always going to be in crisis. And the thing is, is that I think a lot of workers were on that strike because, uh, you know, they were out striking for their own conditions because they might work in a private, uh, healthcare or childcare facility, but. Again, that kind of context wasn't there about, well, actually, where's the money gone that's coming into my establishment? Like, yeah, it's it's really bad. Um, I think there was a couple of other stories as well. I just want to briefly touch on an interest in one of the Irish Times, you know, German regional elections. So more than 50% of people plan to vote for right wing or far right parties. I mean, obviously, this we know this is happening right across Europe. But I just think that, uh, you know, 23 years after unification in Germany, you know, and yet opinion polls predict that 52 and 66 percent respectively plan to vote for right wing or far right parties. That's terrifying. Like That is just absolutely it's for a lot of us. It's not that surprising. But I have to say, I was surprised at the numbers that were so high. And I think that, you know, we're it, it's stark. And I don't think that we're organizing coming up against that and with the kind of force that we need to. I don't think people uh, realize how like what that means and what that actually means for people's lives. And and also those parties then go into Europe. So, you know, the, the the parties that get into power in each country around Europe will end up with a seat at the table in the EU. And EU is already, already an imperialist organisation. It's becoming increasingly um, right wing. It's coming becoming increasingly, you know, well, when you look at the warmongering statements of Ursula von Leyen yesterday, <coughs> they don't represent certainly a lot of Irish people's views and perspectives and I think that that's a conversation that we're going to have to have you know we're going to have to have the conversation about Europe as it stands never mind as it becomes increasingly right wing as the the countries around Europe start to elect right wing uh governments let me see I think there was another one there yeah. as well about um business turning a deaf ear to the green regime so there was a survey and I mean you have to laugh sorry SSC electricity they have a green business sentiment index um and we talk about greenwashing but they do this survey anyway, so let's have a look at the 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 answers on it. Um, so basically, only half of Irish businesses say sustainability and climate change are issues that affect their decision making. That's down twenty percent in just you know two and a quarter years. So I think that that kind of shift so quickly is interesting. Only two thirds of businesses now consider themselves environmentally friendly. Um, that and that was according to the survey carried out by BNA. So that's down eighty five or from eighty five percent in May twenty twenty one. So, and you know, that's a, it's just a trend right the way through. But the bottom line, I, I think what was interesting, but what is actually good to hear is that 90% of them, according to the study, believe that the primary responsibility for tackling climate change lies, lies with the government. I mean, obviously, that's a cop out, but it's also, it, it ultimately is that the government are responsible for this. But it shows that if the government don't, don't take charge, uh, businesses, particularly those who are there to make a profit, aren't going to 
aren't going to do that, you know, so we can. There was a really interesting story then as well around the uh, the drugs hall. So the drugs hall that was off the coast of Cork. And in fairness, a lot of us were talking about this, but basically it, it has come out that the it was a couple of tons, which is obviously a massive amount here, but it barely registered in, in Colombia. You know, so when we're talking about the war on drugs, you know, when you talk about global seizures, it's absolutely nothing. You know, for every couple of tons that's caught, there's a hundred times that getting in somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in another country. And we're coming up to the end of the Citizens Assembly. We know that it's looking like they're going to recommend decriminalization of the person. Um, I don't think, and a lot of people don't think that they actually were given, like, you know, uh, Senator Lynn Rowan and two criminal criminologists from Maynooth wrote, um, they wrote a letter, but they also set up a database before the Assembly started with, you know, a, a load of experts, um, <clears throat> sorry, with international experts, international evidence and a really balanced view from both sides of of what the international evidence is. And that hasn't been called upon. It just really hasn't been called upon when it comes to the assembly. So which is a real pity because they haven't got into the actual argument around some some people say legalization, other people will say regulation. You know, are we just we're leaving this to international criminal gangs and cartels? Like that's the reality. That's what we're doing. And if we don't actually have a mature conversation about this, that's not going to change. And we have this nonsense. You know, a week immediate on the news about two tons of coke being pulled off a boat on the southwest west of Cork, and everybody's clapping their backs. And it's like that's not going to make a material bit of difference on the streets to people who are selling drugs whose families are being intimidated to pay drug debts people who are using drugs themselves it's not going to actually change lives yeah so that's i could listen i could do a whole episode on that i you know i could rant about the war on drugs all day yeah and it was interesting because we've seen some of the kind of we're seeing like some of the recommendations already people kind of leaning the citizen assembly the kind of air is like oh we think they're going to recommend decriminalization i read somewhere but do we actually think that the government is going to listen to to that and act on that i you know they're still ideologically bound and often people say that a lot of these citizens assemblies are used as kind of a tool to delay things that they don't want to happen in the first place so um it obviously the the conversations are important and if you know if people are being provided with all the information that they need to and people are coming out at the end and saying yeah we need to decriminalize and you know that's even off the back of and a couple of people coming out like the, the likes of senator lynn Rand coming out and saying you know there isn't enough um speakers and you know balance in the speakers that are being presented to the, the citizen assembly in the first place um and people are still coming out and saying you know like decriminalization is where it needs to be at even when they're not you know people are saying that there isn't a, it hasn't been a great balance on it but it'll be interesting to see how that rolls out and as you say like how we actually tackle um the issue of uh you know the use of drug, drug problematic use of drugs but actually the how how do we end the war on drugs so that it actually benefits people and communities um who are being affected by um by this that's it because you know along so we have the health issue that comes with decriminalization of the person and treating people humanely who have you know if they if they're engaged in drug use that's really affecting their lives negatively affecting their lives well then that's a health issue and they need support and through it but when we talk about the criminalization of people kids are being groomed into the selling of drugs from the age of 10 onwards you know like we see that i've i've chatted to young people have done research on it like it's that's as clear as day you know do we care about that? Or are we happy for those communities to just be absolutely condemned to the kind of situations that are happening, the poverty, the intimidation, the cycles of criminalization, and these young men particularly ending up in prison, you know, in this cyclical way for their whole lives. So I just think that we care about it affect when it when it rolls into O'Connell Street and when it rolls into Grafton Street, 
that's when everybody cares. And when the, the violence spills out, they don't really care when the violence is happening within communities and families are being intimidated um, to get, you know, authority grand loan out of the credit union. And there are conversations that people just don't like to have and we have to have them. And I think that that is, there is no other option but some kind of regulation because when you leave it up to, uh, you know, an underworld and basically prohibition, we know how that works. But it's very dark as always. I do have one good story to end on. Um, it's actually a WRC case. A brilliant Brazilian embassy worker awarded thirteen and a half grand over maternity leave pay while she was out. So yeah, I mean that's 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 pretty much it. She basically wasn't being topped up, and a man in the office had been topped up when he was on sick leave, and she'd been promised it. And but it, it you know, it it should start a wider conversation. I hope on on maternity pay because a lot of people, a lot of women in this country, go on maternity leave and they actually don't get any top up they're basically entitled to basic social welfare which we know from the pandemic is not enough for people so we'll end there this week but we will just send our solidarity to the palestinian people and particularly the palestinian people in gaza who are facing into unspeakable violence over the next days and weeks and realistically annexation or, or genocide because they're, the only real hope outside of that is the international community stepping in. And I think based on the international community's response to date to allow this to happen in the first place and the un, unthinkable responses of, you know, world leaders and imperialist institutions, our own EU, I don't think that's very likely. They all but gave Israel the go-ahead to carpet bomb one of the most populated places in the world. And that's made up of, you know, 50% of the people there are children. So I think any hope for any kind of empathy or humanity is really done. I think what we can do is we can get out on the streets. We can be heard. We can make sure that the government knows if they don't call for de-escalation and peace talks, then they don't speak in our name. And I think we can also refuse to be pulled into the, the both sides narrative and be forced into being silent because of the horrific images that are coming out. And have the, the straw man created that if we if we stand behind the Palestinian people's right for self-determination, that that means that we're OK with the violence that we're seeing as if we as if it's not the Israeli government that has created this and the international community that has allowed it to happen. And if not, if this isn't exactly what happens when you brutalize and torture and imprison people for decades. So. Don't allow yourself to be sucked into that. Don't allow the media to twist what we know to be true. And that is decades and decades and decades of occupation of the Palestinian people. My name is Claire O'Connor. I've been joined today by my co-host, Michelle Bourne. The Week at Work is a part of the Left Block media and political education platform. And you can find us online at leftblock.com that's leftblock with a c and patreon.com forward slash leftblock and again that's leftblock with a c we have some pretty interesting specials coming up we have um bernadette mccallister's speech from the school crush glee we're going to be launching that over the next week and we also have an interview with bernadette on the legacy bill we also have a short episode on what's happening up in lock too